brought your Bibles, I know we put verses on the screen overhead, and, and I know that's a helpful thing, but I, I, just, I just like flipping the pages. I think, I think there's something spiritual about that. I don't know. It's, it's kind of like the Internet. I enjoy the Internet and studying, but I'm, I'm still kind of old-fashioned. I like just pulling books out and putting them all over the desk, and it's probably just the era that I'm a part of. There just something seems to be more spiritual about that. I know that's probably not the case. Well, no, I know that's not the case, but anyway, bring your Bibles to church if you would, and, and it's always good to know where it's located. Amen. Everyone say change. change. Say it one more time. Change, change is good. Change, change is a kingdom concept. Uh, in fact, I, I'm beginning to see as I, I study the word more and more that change really is the linchpin. It is, it is the key to understanding how spiritual things and God things are in, unlocked in your life. If you, if you don't understand change, you're not going to understand the kingdom, the ways of the kingdom, or how you access all that God has for you and your life. It's about change. And we've already mentioned to you that the biblical terms for change are the word on our side of the equation, repent. Repent is the biblical term for what we do. We change our mind or we change our actions. And so that's, that's our side of the equation. God's side of the equation is transformation. The Greek word being metamorphosis, metamorpho. It means to, to, to change from one thing into another. And so, so there's this happening that takes place in the kingdom that when, when you come pliable, ready for change, when you come repentant and ready for God to renew your mind, change your heart, he has the capacity to reach into your life and begin to do some things that transforms you into that which you had always hoped for, dreamed, and, and that which you need. How many of you know if God created you, he probably knows best how you ought to run? I, I mean, I know we think we know how to run our lives, but it seems to me that if God is a creator, he would be the best operator in our life. And in order to get there, we're going to need to change. And so change is important. And, and hear me right now. God's not about tweaking your life. Listen, this is important. God's not about tweaking the edges of your life. He is not about just becoming another one of, of numerous self-help plans or programs that you are currently putting into your life. He wants your life in order to give you a new life, to change it and to give you a new life. That's what the kingdom is all about. And so I encourage you to begin to embrace for 2007 the concepts of change. And today our lesson I've entitled, and I'm spending a lot of time kind of leading up through the actual change process. I'm spending a lot of time on this because, to be honest with you, most people, once they go through the change, then, then life begins to take on some wonderful features. Things begin to happen out of that particular decision. And, and you'll have actually a season where you'll begin to live out of that aspect of change that's been made in your life. But it's getting to this point that, that is tough for most people. It's getting to the place where you're ready to change is the most difficult aspect in a human being's life. And so this morning I want to just talk for a few moments on what I've entitled Preparing for change, preparing yourself for change. Um, my folks, many of you know, my folks have been visiting here and they've been coming out over the winter time uh, to get away from all that beautiful balmy weather in the Midwest that they've been having. 
and uh, just spend some time out here and enjoy Charleston and, and, and get around grandkids and all the things they do. But my mom brought me out this time an old newspaper article that she had found laying around the house and she thought it would go good. I have this little, I don't know, what's it called? A memory box that she created for me. It's really kind of a neat thing. And it has all sorts of things. Some memories I'd just soon forget, but nonetheless, mostly good memories in this box and uh, brought this newspaper clipping out. It was a nice, you know, good-sized newspaper clipping of, of when I was a baseball player in high school. It was dated, I think, up from the Olathe, Kansas newspaper, like April 15th, 17th of 1977. Have mercy. 30 years ago. This, this, and, and I tell you, though, it was really kind of interesting reading through it again. Because it just, you know, whenever you read something that has some historical significance in your life, it solicits all sorts of memories and thoughts. And so I was reading through the article and it talked about how we played a doubleheader that game and we actually split the doubleheader. And the reason I so am so glad that she brought it out is because that was one of those days I had a really good day playing baseball. I had, I think, a, an extra base hit or two and scored a run, got a couple RBIs, all the things that you want to do when you're playing sports. I mean, it was covered. Not only that, I had a, my picture, a full-blown picture of myself was in there, shaking the pitcher's hand. And let me just say, I was cut, man. I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> you, I know you're saying right now, that's hard to believe, Pastor. I understand gravity and all the rest, but, but it was, it was, it was just, it was great to be able to just stroll down memory lane. 30 years ago, that picture was there. And it just, uh, like I said, brought back some interesting memories. But as I was reading that, I began to think about certain things about baseball. Now, it had been years since I played uh, the game really seriously. But I can remember several things about the game of baseball. Number one is, is that if, if you could somehow know the pitch that was being thrown at you as a batter, it would give you a significant, uh, 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 a, a significant ability you'd have a you'd have you would have an absolute I'm, I'm running out of words edge thank you here I'll give you this and you can um, a significant edge in playing the game if you if you knew if you could like sneak out of the corner of your eye and see the sign the catcher was flashing or whatever the case may be and there are basically three pitches at least in high school baseball that you would get thrown at you number one is the fastball and if you threw a good fastball it would take you a long way in high school baseball I, I faced pitchers that eventually went to the major leagues, and you probably wouldn't know them because now it's been so many years, they've come and gone and retired and all the rest. But we're talking, if you can throw an 85, 90 mile an hour fastball in high school, man, you, you, you could go a long, long way. The second pitch was obviously the curveball. I mean, if you could hit a curveball and know it was coming, it was a little bit easier pitch to hit, especially if you knew it was on the way. But the third one, which was thrown sometimes in high school, was what was called the changeup. And if you could know that the changeup was coming, man, that was the one. You could just set back on that back leg and just knock that thing forever. So it was, it, it was absolutely incumbent to know or to guess or however it is you did it to know what pitch was being thrown at you. Now, I can tell you this much. If you didn't know, let's say you expected a fastball and they threw you a changeup, I mean, you would look silly at the plate because your, your bat would be out there. And we used to say, man, he lost his shorts on that one. That's how we used to say it in the dugout. 
But nonetheless, it was helpful to know what pitch was being thrown at you. And if you knew what was coming, man, you could just, you could jack that thing square out of the park. Well, can I suggest to you that life in many ways is a lot like a ball game. And if you can begin to understand what's being thrown at you, if you understand what's coming across the plate and you're up to bat and you've got an idea of what's coming, it can give you that edge that you need in order to make sure you're doing and being and getting to where you need to go and do and be. More often than not, what happens in people's lives is they come up to bat, they're ready to do life, they're ready to take a big cut at life, and the ball gets thrown, and it's not the pitch they expected, and they're just, they just, they're, they're, they've lost their shorts. That's exactly what happens. I want to suggest to you, and, and this isn't the message really this morning, I'm teaching in a far more practical way, but if you want to know why I think the prophetic word and the prophetic gift is so important, it's because the prophetic gifting or that anointing or that DNA can cause you to know the pitch that's being thrown. Is that not right? I mean, if you knew something was getting thrown and, and you've had a word on that, God sent his word, I'm here to tell you, you are much better prepared to navigate whatever season that is that's coming your direction. But for most people, they don't hear the voice of God. They don't consider God much until they're in trouble. And, uh, and, and they, therefore, they aren't prepared for the change that's coming. Now, I think I put on um, the screen overhead a phrase that's very important. It says this. The vast majority of the world changes out of crisis rather than preparing for it and changing out of conviction. You ought to write that down because you could put your name in there instead of the world. Most people change because there's crisis rather than the fact that they have a conviction that life should be lived differently. In fact, I'm going to have a message here in a few weeks and I can't go into that except to say that change will happen to you. The question is whether or not it's going to be change that you'll navigate well and whether that change will take you the right direction. There are a lot of people that change. They're just going backwards. How many of you know people are moving backwards and not forwards? And most people are not awakened to the need until crisis hits. Now, we've been talking about the children of Israel. They are the perfect example. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Paul says... These people were given to you and given to me as an admonition that we might be reminded that what they went through, you'll go through, and you ought to get a clue when you read about their life because where they hit the mark, you can, you can hit the mark, and where they miss the mark, you can take note and not do the same thing. But they are the perfect example of people who only have the capacity to change out of crisis. They're in Egypt. Chains, bondage, uh, uh, slavery, indentured servanthood, uh, low wages, terrible boss, bad home. I mean, everything you can imagine that was wrong was wrong. And they cried out saying, oh God, we need out of this. We need change. And God, praise his name, heard their cries. And came and sent them a deliverer by the name of Moses and brought them out. Can I share this with you? There are some people, maybe some today here in this service, I don't know. But they'll come to the house of God because they are in exactly the same position. Their life's a mess. Things are falling apart. They're addicted. They're in bondage. They're, you know, alcoholics, drugs, dysfunction, relationships that have crashed. 
any one of a hundred things, lost their job, no money, don't know how they're going to pay their bills, a hundred things, crying out to God saying, oh God, set me free, help me, and God sends someone to you to speak a word that leads you out of that and gets you back on the ground you need to be on. Everybody say praise God because that was most of us. Praise God. That was most of us. But here's the problem. Israel got out of their difficulty, their crisis and their issue, but they didn't understand the nature of change in as much as that generation never pressed beyond just getting free and finally getting into their purpose. God doesn't want to just free you, hear me, that's important, but he wants to bring you into a purpose. He wants to bring you into a land. He wants to bring you into a dream. He wants to bring you into a destiny. He wants to bring you into something good. But he's going to change you some more if you're going to get there. Now, I wrote down here, why is it hard for God's people to change? Why is it hard for God's people to change? You wouldn't think this to be the case. But oftentimes it is. You ought to write this down. I, I imagine you may find yourself in a couple of these. You don't have to raise your hand and say, oh, that's me, you know, okay? But you need to be honest enough with yourself if you see yourself. The first reason is, go ahead and flash it up there, guys. We see the past as better than it really was. We see the past better than it really was. You remember Israel? They always said to Moses, as they were pressing to their promise, let's go back to Egypt. We really had it better in Egypt. I know we were slaves, but at least they fed us. You know, I, I, know, I know the wages were low, but at least we had somewhere to lay our head. I mean, there were some features, and this is the interesting thing I found about memories. Have you ever noticed that memories tend to somehow hide the negative and accentuate the positive? That, that's how it works for me. You go past something, and you really remember the good stuff, but the bad stuff starts floating away. And, and I just want to remind you of this. The good old days really weren't all that good. I want you to remember that. I don't know about you. I like my air conditioning in Charleston. Thank you. Some of you remember when that wasn't around. In your car or anywhere else. Thank you. I like my air conditioning. I like, I like my central heating. Thank you. I like that. I like all the amenities. I like my CD player. You know? I, 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 I like all the electronic equipment. I like my cell phone. I don't know about you, I, I mean, it, I have some amusing stories about my granddad when he had a party line and how he used to listen to other people's conversations, but I don't want to go back to that. Are you with me? I don't want to go back to polyester suits. Thank you, I like worsted wool. Thank you, I'll keep wearing that. I don't want leisure suits. I break and rebuke that spirit in the name of Jesus. I don't want to go back to that. Have you ever noticed some people, though, some people are always trying to recapture their past days. You ever meet people like that? They're always trying to recapture the glory of their high school days. Any of you ever seen Napoleon Dynamite and, and, his, and his Uncle Rico who sits in the coffee shop going, if I just had caught the football, if I had just caught that pass? Because he's convinced if he could go back and just catch the ball, his life would be different. That's our problem. The past wasn't that great. The good old days weren't always that great. And, and, and so it's hard for us to change because even for us, we say to, we remember something. We remember maybe the church we used to attend or, or we remember a move of God that did happen or we remember something back there that now seems so much better than where we're at because we've forgotten where we've you know, come from in the negative stuff. And I'm just telling you, you'll never get to your future looking back to the past. 
Amen. Number two, we change based on our pain rather than gain. I have found that for most people, and this is unfortunately, pain is their catalyst. Change comes to most people because their pain levels have increased to such proportion that they have finally, internally and mentally said to themselves, well, you know, I couldn't hurt any more than I do, so I'll just go ahead and change. It couldn't be worse than what I've already faced, so I'll just go ahead and make the changes. It's all fallen apart already, so what have I got to lose? And unfortunately, that is how most change comes to us. Now, we need to understand that while God will use pain, that's really not his his preference in getting us to change. He would rather get us to change by looking at us and saying, you got a future. You've got a promise. I've got something incredibly great for you to walk in that is beyond your wildest dreams. I can do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or think according to the power that I put in you. And I really want you to get there, but it's going to take some change. But we go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Don't you don't you even begin to touch my comfortability. Because, because anytime we change, it'll be uncomfortable. And we don't want to be uncomfortable. We'll change as long as it's comfortable. Uh, as long as it doesn't cost me anything, as long as I don't feel anything different, I guess I'll go with it. But most change doesn't happen that way. And this is why God's people won't change, because we have developed a theology of if, if, it, good, if it makes me feel good and everything's in order and it's perfect and it's smooth, then it must be God. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that's ever heard that. But can I just tell you this? If it's God, he'll throw you in the bellies of whales. He'll shipwreck you. He'll put you in the middle of a storm in a small boat and then make you get out and walk on water. I mean, I'm telling you. I don't know where we create some of this stuff at, but God doesn't always make it smooth. Sometimes it can be quite stormy. And he calls us to press forward anyway. Number three, we settle for relief rather than promise. We settle for relief rather than promise. This is another thing I've noticed in people's lives. Whenever whenever they reach the place where they're ready to change, they'll begin to pursue change, but they'll only go as far as their relief begins to come. As soon as they feel relief from the pressure, they feel relief from the circumstance, they feel relief just from all the chaos that's been going on in their life, as soon as they feel that relief... They'll stop. And can I just say, relief is a wonderful thing. I mean, if you've ever been in an intense situation, if you've ever had chaos around you, if you've ever been in a place where you felt like everything was falling apart and out of control, and you just get to the place of relief, you're just glad. Praise God, there's relief. And you're just happy. But here's the deal. You cannot settle at that location. Because God didn't call you to press through to the point of relief. He called you to press through to the point of promise. Relief is wonderful, but that's not promise. It's interesting, even the children of Israel, when they went into war for the land, they warred until they were about halfway through, and then they wanted to make treaties. Because they were weary, they were exhausted, they'd finally reached the place of relief, and they didn't take care of everything else that needed to get taken care of, and they didn't secure the promise, and here we are 4,000 years later, and they're still fighting. So we've got to understand, we're not looking for relief. A lot of people have said the church is a hospital, and I agree with that. There is a function of church life that is a lot like a hospital. You come in, people are in pain, you want to do what you can in order to bring relief to their situation. 
But we are doing a disservice if that's all we are. We're not just a hospital. We should also be a dream factory. A purpose factory. Where people get relief, but then they get enlivened and a vision for something more than maybe what they have right now. And then finally, number four. A lot of times the people of God won't change because we don't want to lose the little we now have. We don't want to lose the little that we have right now. I'm going to read our verse for this morning, don't worry. But how many of you remember the parable of the talents? Remember the master gives three of his servants different numbers of talents? I think it's ten, five, and one. And then he goes away and he says, what are you going to do with it? And, and you know the story, they, they double the one with ten and five, double it. But the one with one basically buries it. And when the master shows up, he said, why did you bury it? And he said, well, I knew you were a hard guy and I, and I didn't want to mess up, so I just buried it. And he looked at him and he said, you wicked and lazy servant. Can I just share with you that there are a lot of us who say when God does something a little good that all of a sudden we, we embrace it and there's nothing wrong with that. We'll give him thanks, nothing wrong with that. But we're so afraid we're going to lose the little bit we've got that we won't trust him to go after the big thing. I'm just here to tell you, sometimes God will ask after he gives you good things. He'll say, will you let it go? Will you release it? Will you let that stuff come back into my economy? And we are so fearful. There are some of you right now, you won't even attempt to look for another job because that minimum wage thing you got right now is just barely paying your bills and you can't conceive of life beyond barely paying your bills. And God's saying, would you trust me to go out and let the little thing go that you could go get more? Now, there are going to be those moments in all of our lives. God will meet the need, but there will be other times that we're going to have to let go of what brought us comfort and begin to press into those things that ultimately God wants in us. And God had to weed all of that out of the Israelites. Do you understand why the generation of Israelites went through the wilderness was what he was trying to do was weed out of them a mentality he was trying to weed out of them a mentality of Egypt and just barely getting by. He was trying to weed out of them all those things that they carried from their old life. And ultimately, this is the sad part, he couldn't weed it out of them and so he had to let a new generation arise. He had to let one die and let another arise. Can I just share this with you? And you think about this in church life. You know why God raises up new churches and he does new things? It's not that he doesn't care about the other churches mainline, older, historical churches. It's not that he doesn't love them and care about them. But I'm just telling you, the dynamic works all through history. It works in such a way that God says, I, I can't do something in you because you're unwilling to change. So I've got to raise up a generation that says, I'm going on with God. And that's why he has to do it over and over and over again. And I believe even now in 2007, he's attempting to bring change in order that we can get into a promise, and he's changing you. Listen to me. He's changing you in order that you might receive the gain of his kingdom and the gain of the things that he has for you. And uh, so there's a lot of groundwork, and I want to read to you some verses here. Bear with me. In the book of Joshua. Turn to the book of Joshua. And I want to read to you just several verses, familiar verses to many of you. But listen Listen again, this is the generation that's getting ready to finally go into destiny. If there's ever a generation you want to lay hold of, this is the one. 
So listen to the first chapter of the book of Joshua, and this is what it says. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness of Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Hittites, to the great sea going, to the, going down of the sun, uh, shall be your territory. Verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I spoke to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you'll make your way prosperous and then you'll have good success. Have I not commanded you be strong and of good courage, do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, verse 11, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Preparing for change. The Lord is preparing this generation we've just read about for the greatest change that they've ever experienced. And he's trying to get them ready in, in, in numerous ways in order to begin to press into where they ultimately need to go. Now, I've got to give you a little context because I kind of chuckled as I began just to read this whole account with regards to the change that was taking place. Uh, it, the, the very chapter starts out telling us Moses is dead. Moses is dead. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. This would have been a time of incredible transition. How many of you know Moses? I mean, Moses was just one incredible dude. I mean, you're talking about a guy that went in and, and faced down Pharaoh, throwing down his rod, turning into a snake, having the capacity to speak and prophesy of, of different plagues and issues that were coming into uh, the whole nation of Egypt. He was the guy that spoke about manna from heaven. He was the guy that, that spoke to rocks and water poured forth. He was the guy that lifted his hands and the battles would be won. He was the guy that, that, that you know, God used in order to split the Red Sea and all the things that had taken place. I mean, I mean, that's pretty incredible, is it not? And here God shows up and he says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Moses represented the voice of God to the people. I mean, you even challenge a guy like Moses, I mean, you'd get leprosy. I mean, you think about it, this is this is one of God's, God's men. I mean, you challenge Moses, earthquake, you're gone. All of this is taking place. And this is the thing that suddenly struck me. Moses didn't even get a decent burial. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. But it really doesn't tell us anything in the scriptures about the burial of Moses. And I thought to myself, here's a guy that did all of these things... Why in the world did they not even give him a decent burial? And I have come to this conclusion. I think the reason he didn't allow the people to give him a decent burial is because if they would have got their fingers in it, what they would have done was enshrined him. 
I think they would have made a temple, they'd have had a building project, they'd have put something there, and they'd have just raised it up, you know, the Moses thing, and they would have enshrined him, and of course they would have had to have left some people back, because you'd have to have somebody to care for it, and, you know, watch over it, and of course, you just can't build a building with having landscapes, so someone's got to water it, and and, and so can you begin to imagine all these things that would begin to take place? And I think somewhere in the, in the foreknowledge of God, he knew that if he allowed them even a decent burial, they would have enshrined him and they would have just plopped right there. And that's exactly what we do. Something God does which is good and it's valid and it's important, but we just we want to stop and let him enshrine that moment. And God's saying, you know what, it's not that Moses isn't important or that there isn't a valid place for remembering, but there's also a place for realizing that you can't camp on what has happened. You've got to begin to press forward on what God wants to happen. I mean, I was watching the other day, you know, we had uh, one of our presidents, President Ford, recently passed away. And I'm always amazed, and it is interesting, that at times you begin to see uh, all the clips, the news clips they'll do, they'll review their life and all the things that had happened. And, and again, there is an appropriate place for remembering and honoring and all the rest. But, but I was just amazed. For about two weeks, everything stopped for, you know, President Ford. Now, he was a good guy. He led the nation through important days. I salute him. He's worthy of honor. But there are some people that never get beyond that. They just, they, they, they camp at that particular moment and uh, don't understand that there's something in the future that we've got to begin to look at. You know, it's interesting. God never called his church or his people to be a museum. I know in Chicago there's a great museum of natural history. And you go into the museum and you can take a tour and you can see all the relics and all the things. And it's real interesting to see things of days gone by. But that museum, as interesting as it may be, is, is not going anywhere. It's not pressing into anything new. It's not going to help you. It's not going to give you insight or revelation. It's just, it's just really an, an observation place of that which is happening. You know, it's interesting to me that we don't build a museum for today, the museum of today's history. I mean, we don't do that, do we? I guess that's called Walmart, isn't it? I, I, what, I guess. But truth of the matter is we've got to be a today people. And this was a moment for the children of Israel that the Lord could not allow them to camp. He could not allow them to entrench themselves where they were. But instead, he said, I'm going to make sure you know Moses is dead. And now it's time for you to get moving. So along comes Joshua. And Joshua begins to declare the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord was this. It was God has a future for you. He has a land for you and a destiny and a promise for you. And Joshua reminds the people, he says, God is more committed to your future than sometimes you're committed to your future. Isn't that a good news? I mean, hear me now. There are some of you right now, you need to know that God has more commitment to your future than you do. You're doing everything perhaps you can do to destroy yourself. But the Lord's saying, I got a future for you. And he wants you to know that. But I've always felt sorry for Joshua because Joshua is the one that has to come and not just lead five million people. Imagine that, getting five million people to get up and begin to move. But Joshua has to follow Moses. How would you like that? I mean, here you are and you got to follow Moses. Here you are and, and, and you got to follow the dude that called down plagues. You got to follow the guy that spoke to rocks and water came out. I mean, that, that had to be an intimidating thing. 
But it's interesting that despite the fact that Joshua could have been intimidated by who Moses was and having to follow him, Joshua was the one that God entrusted with the people of Israel to move them from where they were and get them to where they are. Now, why was that? Why does Joshua get to do what Moses did not get to do? I used to think, as I would look at people and I would look at their lives, I used to think this. I'll just, I'll just be transparent for a moment. I'd look at people and what was going on in their life, and this is what I used to kind of internally say. I'd say, well, God must love them more than he loves me. God must care about what they're doing more than he cares about what I'm doing. He just must have more interest in what's going on over there than what, what we've got going on over here. And I used to think that way. But that was wrong thinking. You need to know that God loves you as much as he loves anybody. He cares about you as much as he cares about anyone else. He is no respecter of people. But the reason Joshua got to do what Moses could not do was because Joshua and his generation had the capacity to embrace change. They could see when something was dead. Can I make this practical? How long will you go to a dead-end job before you finally say, this is dead? Are you with me? I mean, they had the ability to recognize this is dead. This, this isn't going anywhere. This isn't happening. Now, listen to this as well. I didn't say go out and quit tomorrow. I didn't say that. I didn't say all of a sudden cause upheaval in your life. I didn't say that. But there comes a moment you've got to arise and say, you know what? I've got to embrace change. This is dead. And something's got to change in order to bring life into this equation again. There are many of you right now that are, that are waiting for God to breathe life into your situation and what God's waiting for you is to say it's dead. And you, need, and you need to begin to make some changes in order to see life begin to come to that thing. I mean, it's a historical fact that every new outpouring of the Lord comes usually to the next generation and the reason it comes to them is because they have the capacity to embrace change. Now, I'm going to give you seven preparation steps right now. Write these down. Seven preparation steps that you need to begin to embrace. I know we already talked about personal change and embracing it, but we've got a lot of preparation to do before we can actually move through the change. That you've got to begin to put your arms, your mind, your heart, your spirit around in order to get you to that next thing that God's wanting to lead you into. Seven things that can begin to help bring preparation to that. Number one. There is the call of God to the future. If you've not heard the call of God to your future, then my suggestion to you is this. You need to get on your knees. You need to cry out to the Lord. You need to begin to seek him and say, Lord, what is it that you've got for my future? You've got something. I know you do. I want to know it. I want you to begin to speak to me and talk to me. The first thing God does is he calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He wants to use you to do something that is beyond you. He wants to do something through you that is over and above anything that you could even begin to imagine. We've already heard the word of the Lord say this to us. It said that 2007 was going to be the year of change and it was going to be the year that you had always lived your life for. Now I'm here to tell you, you can hoot, holler, shout, cheer, clap, but unless you embrace the change that it will take, I'll assure you we'll be here December 31 and you'll be in exactly the same place. So you're going to have to hear first the call of God. 
in that situation that he's calling you to a future? Do you, do you even believe that he's got a future for you? That's worse. I, I'm telling you, I, I, will, I would be willing if I were a betting man and if people would be honest with me. There are some who would walk out today and say, I want to believe that. I really do. I, I really want to believe that God has something phenomenal for me, but I just don't know if I can believe that. I just don't know. I just don't know. And they'll go on and on and on and break that in the name of Jesus and believe God has a great future for you. That's the call of God for the future. He's awakening that in his people. Number two, you're going to have to deal with the various fears of change. You're going to have to realize that change can be a scary thing. Now, as I was reading through this particular chapter, I noticed that I kept seeing here the phrase, be strong and of good courage. And then he goes on and says, be strong and very courageous. And uh, then in verse 9, he says, be strong and of good courage again. And then he says, don't be afraid or dismayed. Three times. <laughs> Have you ever thought about God repeating himself and why he repeats himself? He's probably emphasizing something here. There is going to be a fear that will happen when change begins to take place. Now, he says it three times, and there may be more than this, but I've determined... Uh, that there are at least three things, I think three of the major fears that come to us when, it, when change enters into the equation that we're going to have to begin to see. Drop that first one. The first is the fear of inadequacy. The fear of inadequacy. Everybody usually says when change is before them, they, they, they will say, I can't do this. I can't do this. It's over my head. I don't know if I'm you know, qualified. I don't know if this is you know, something I can put my hand to. I can't do this. You've got to kick the can't out of your life. The Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So you've got to get the can back in you. I can do this. Now, you may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, but let me just tell you, God can use dull knives if you're willing to be sharpened by him. So you've got to break the I can't out of your vocabulary and that inadequacy. You know, there's an appropriate place I think all of us have to get to where we, we don't think we're all that in a bag of chips. You know, some people don't have this problem. They're on the opposite end of the spectrum. They think they can do anything. They're secretly Superman just waiting for their moment. You know, they're a legend in their own mind. I mean, and so I know there are people like that. So there's an appropriate place of understanding that you ain't all that. But there are some people that walk with such a diminished sense of esteem... That they, that they need to arise and understand, you know, I understand I'm not much, but I can do all things through Christ. I can. Yes, I can. I can, I can change. The second area is failure. You've got to break through the fear of failure. You know, sometimes we'd rather just stay where we are and not risk the possibility that we could fail. If I don't move, at least I won't fail. If I don't move, I won't be disappointed. If I don't move, then nothing bad can happen. If I just... If I just don't move. Now we're going to talk about this in a couple weeks. Uh, because there's what they call the scientific law of thermodynamics. Which means things that don't move eventually deteriorate. And, and so you can say I'm going to stay where you are. Where I am. But you're, you're, everything's moving. Nothing's staying just exactly where they are. So change is coming. You just have to determine where it's coming from. But I believe some are seized with failure. And then thirdly fear of the unknown. I want to believe God, but I, I don't want to go through this curtain. I don't want to go across this Jordan. I don't want to move into this new arena because I don't know what may be awaiting me there. And because I don't know, I'm afraid. I, I have this fear. 
And, and you're just going to have to realize that God will help you break through those fears and even the fear of failure. I've reached this place in my life. I, I, when I get to the end of my life, I've decided that when I lay my head on a pillow at night, when I'm aged and Trace and I are there and, you know, I'm 95 years old or however old I am. And I want to be able to at least say I took a shot. I'd, I'd at least want to be able to say maybe, maybe I didn't hit 100%, but you can't say 100% of the time I didn't take a shot. And, and, and I just encourage you to break through those failure feelings. And if you will, God will begin to bring you into his good land. Number three, there's the realization of his presence. The realization of his presence. You know, there's this misconception that's out there that I think every human being has is that if I enter into change, I don't want to say this, that, that they believe that God may call them to the place of change. But then what they believe is, is that God calls them to the change and then they become a functional deist. They think that somehow God called them to change and then he just leaves them out there. You know, okay, I heard the voice of the Lord that said change, maybe make this step. And then we're sort of making this step. And, and we, then we have this feeling that maybe God isn't there or God's not with us. You know what the Bible says? It says as he's calling his people to change, he says, lo, I'm with you. He says, I'm with you always. I'll walk with you through this thing. As you make this change, it's not like he's saying, it's not like God's sitting back here in the stands going, hey, yeah, change, change. I'm going to gather me a few angels and we'll pop a few tall ones and we'll just watch and kind of gig each other as they watch you move through life. That's not how it works. God says, I'm so invested in your future that I'm going to walk with you every step of the way as you move through change, even as you're moving through that purpose. So do you understand, even when you step across the Jordan and you're facing your first battles, God's not off in the distance. He's there in the midst of that battle. He's with you all the way. His presence is there. So that ought to help you in going through change. Number four. There is the moment of decision. There's a moment of decision. You can't get to second base standing on first. There comes a moment you must decide. I'm going to step and I'm going to do this. I wish there was another way. But you can analyze, you can look, you can graph, you can chart, you can make your lists, you can consider the pros and the cons. You can do all of these things, but there comes a moment you must decide whether or not you're going to enter into that. I was thinking the other day of years ago. My mom and dad will remember this. This is, this is back in the mid-60s, probably, 1960s. Some of y'all here down here, you weren't even born yet. And I can remember we used to go vacation at the lake. We stayed at a resort had some friends that were there as well. I was probably eight years old, nine years old, somewhere in that age area. And it was the first time that I had the opportunity to learn how to water ski. And uh, I watched other people do it. There were obviously lots of people who were doing it on the lake. It was a resort lake. And obviously a lot of people were doing it. But there was great conflict that went on in my mind as to whether or not this was something I was going to do. I was concerned about safety, mine, mine being the top priority in that equation. I'd never done it before. The lake is deep. 
And uh, there was just some real conflict. I can remember going through all of this. So I wanted to make sure, I wanted to make sure everything was in order before I made this decision. Because for all I knew, this could be my last decision I would ever make in my, in my young life. That's how I felt. And uh, they tried to teach me how all this worked out on dry land. You know, it's hard to teach someone to water ski on dry land. But, but they tried to go through all of these things in order to allay my fears, in order to help me understand how all of this worked. And I can remember when it came time, this is ridiculous. Back in those days, uh, it was still legal. We, we, you would wear ski belts. I don't know if those of you that are old enough will remember. They weren't the, you know, the, you know, the designer ski jackets you have today. But you had the, these ski belts you just wrap around your waist. And, and, and so it wasn't just good enough to wear a ski belt. But I had the full-blown... You know, that what they call the, old, the May West uh, life preserver, the orange thing. I had two ski belts <laughs> around me. Dude, you couldn't have drugged me to the bottom, man. I was, I was like a cork buoyant, you know. I mean, what's funny was they didn't even need the boat to pull me out of the water. I mean, they could have just said, stand, boy, stand. And needed just... Because it was just, I had all that on me. But, but I wanted to do everything I knew and could do to make sure that what I was about to enter in was safe. And I wasn't going to drown because I knew I'd be out there over my head. And, and you know when I eventually found out? I eventually found out that you can't even learn to do that with all that stuff on. In fact, some of it had to peel off. And eventually, the more you did it, you know, the less you needed it on. And, and to make a long story short, yes, he water skis, yes. Got pretty good at it. But nonetheless, that first time was, was very, very difficult. And that's how some of you look at change. You want to make sure you've got all this stuff on, ready to dive in the water. And God, God may let you have one thing, maybe, that will give you some sense of, 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 of security. I'm not saying he'll totally leave you hanging out there to dry. But there comes a moment you got to make the decision. You can watch others ski. You can sit on dry land and everybody, you can go to the seminar that will help you water ski. You can study up on it, hit the internet, download all sorts of information, but there comes a moment you've got to decide. You've got to decide. Am I in this or am I not in this? Am I jumping in or not? We have developed a Christianity of sort of try it, you'll like it. Give it a 30-day test run and see if your life's any better. And our problem is, is that we're not giving people what they need. You've got to cut your lifeline to the world and begin to dive into the things of God and into his future. And that's why we aren't seeing the American church and the American Christian do as much as we see third world Christians do. It's because, well, some of them just don't have anything to lose. You tell them they'll, they'll lose everything. They say, I don't have much but a tin shack anyway, so I guess this is easy. But we've got to understand that there's, there's going to be that, that moment that we're going to have to decide. There's always that moment. Let's keep going. Number five, it kind of segues. There's always a requirement. There's always a requirement. God always asks of you something to prepare something, to pull something together. He asks of you to do something. In fact, he says here, as you're going into the land, this is what he says. I found this interesting. He looked at the people and he said, as you're going into the land, keep the word of God in your mouth and near you. Isn't that interesting? You know why he said that? It didn't dawn on me till really just this week because I was just kind of meditating on it. The first generation didn't keep the promise and they didn't keep the word and they didn't keep the future in their mouth. 
What they kept in their mouth was, we are as grasshoppers. We can't do this. It'll never happen to us. It'll never happen to me. That's what they kept in their mouth. So the Lord looks at this generation and he says, this is the requirement. You've got to just cut that talking out, that stinking thinking out, and you've got to put in your mouth the word and the promise and the future of God. You've got to get, that's the requirement. That's the requirement. You're going to have to learn to talk what God says. You're going to have to learn to speak what he's put for you and your future. There's always a requirement with regards to change. And uh, it's not what you see in the land but it's what you see in the heart of God. Number six, there is the sacrifice of your faith. The sacrifice of your faith. It's interesting here in verse 11, he passes through the camp or the officers do and they command the people saying, prepare provisions for yourselves for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in and to possess the land. Now I want you to think about this for just a moment. Joshua sends his commanders and he says, go run through the camp. Now we're not talking a little boy scout camp with a dozen kids. Five million people. Go through and tell five million people to prepare because we're fixing to move from this spot in three days. Is that not amazing? Can you imagine? You get three days warning to move from this spot. I'm just, I'm just telling you, there's no, you know, there's little preparation time. You've got, to, you've got to get up from where you are and think about this. They've spent 40 years in that spot. Now, they traverse some I'm not saying there was no movement that went on, but there was some significant time that took place in the area that they had landed in. And now Joshua says this. He says, three days. I'm not giving you time to think about it. If you want to pray about it, you got three days. But in three days, we're leaving this spot to go into the promise. And there's always that sacrifice of your faith. A trace had ran across this the other day. It was a definition of faith that I really like. Faith is a forward, an aggressive forward action that needs to take place in your life. You want to know what faith, faith is not just saying, I believe, oh, I believe. Oh boy, that believing stuff really can hurt you inside right there. Faith is a forward, aggressive action. That's what God moves on. If you don't believe it, turn to the book of Hebrews real quick. The book of Hebrews chapter 11. Look at these particular verses. Start with verse 7. It says, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared the ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. They, it never rained on the earth. And he looks at the world and he says, it's fixing to rain. And they look and say, what's rain? And he says, well, you're going to find out. And he starts building an ark. Can you imagine Faith, faith for Noah wasn't just believing that God would send rain. Faith for Noah was, I got to get wood and hammer and get going on this thing. That was faith. Keep reading. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Do you hear what I'm saying? Faith for Abraham wasn't that, oh, I believe God's got a good day for me. He's going to do something wonderful. He's going to fulfill his promise. But there came a moment when, when he had to arise and step out and go somewhere he'd never been before, not really knowing all that was going to await him, but he had to do it in order to get his inheritance. We could keep reading on and on and on. 17, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said, and Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, 
from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So for Abraham, it wasn't just the matter of saying, oh yes, Lord, it's all yours. Yes, Lord, everything I own, every, every part of my life, it's all yours. That's not faith. Faith is that moment where you hear the voice of the Lord and you take what God's asking you to him, believing that even if it's a tad bit strange, God will intervene and begin to do what he said he would do. That's faith. That's what it's about. There's a sacrifice to faith. Faith isn't just this sort of believing in this ethereal, nebulous concepts and doctrine. Faith is when you get up off the old hind end and you say, Lord, I trust you and I will walk in what you said. Yes, it's an amen. And that's why God moves by faith. It's when he sees that forward aggressive movement. So there's always that sacrifice. And then lastly, number seven, this is the good news. There is the reality of the reward. There's the reality of the reward. The reward. Hebrews 11.6 says that when we move in faith and when we move diligently that God is a rewarder. Everyone say reward. I don't know about you, but you know why they give rewards for things? It's because they know people are motivated. They know when they see a reward, you know, on the sign or a reward across the television set. They know that people will be motivated in order to do what they need to do. The Bible says this, that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There's a payday to all of this. I mean, that really is good news. Can can I say this now? When I say payday, I know everybody thinks money because we're Americans and everything boils down to what does it cost and how much do I get. Money isn't everything. Let me tell you, when you're out of joy, joy joy could be a lot. I mean, that could... You'd pay a lot for a little joy in your life. If, you, if, if you're in the middle of a tumultuous moment and you don't have peace, peace can be worth a lot. It sure can. It's not all about money. But there is a reward for those who diligently seek him. How about contentment, satisfaction, fulfillment? Sure, God, God will give you certain benefits and the amenities of life. I'm not saying those things can't fit into the equation. But truth of the matter is, is when you follow the Lord, there will be a reward. He rewards those who diligently seek him. And here's the even better news, that even if you don't see everything you think you need to have in this life, the good news is that temporal destiny eventually transitions into eternal destiny. And there's going to be a day you might not have much in your bank account, but you're going to be walking on the stuff you thought was so important. Amen. God wants to bring you to that place of change. Are you prepared for change in the year 2007? Are you prepared to get up to the plate and take a swing at whatever pitch is thrown at you, knowing what's coming and not just hoping you get a hit, but hitting the thing? And maybe not just even getting the base hit, but actually maybe getting to take a trip around the bases. God wants that for you. He really does. I'm convinced that's the heart of God for his people. But here's the issue. The issue is not on his side of the equation. The issue is on our side of the equation. We have to begin to embrace. We have to enter in to the requirement. We have to enter into what he asks of us. And when we do that, there's a synergy that will begin to take place that I believe will be explosive and will begin to open incredible doors for you in the days ahead. I'll end with this. I believe it was this morning. I was reading through the paper this morning. And... um, Happened to see a letter to the editor. So some of you may run home and see if 
if it was today's paper, but there was someone who was writing concerning the recent debate that's taking place in a fairly well-known denomination that is here in our area. It's taking place within their ranks about their future and about which direction it will go. And, a, and most of us that have kept up know there's kind of a liberal faction, they would call it, for lack of a better term, maybe a conservative faction, and there's this great uproar. And, and all of us have been able to read it here in the papers lately. And uh, it was interesting because somebody wrote in that was watching it from another angle, and they were making the case in this particular article that there were, there were some things, of course, that never changed, and there were some things that should stay just like they were, and, and their particular brand of church or religion is the one that's really, I, I took from the letter, the right one, because they no longer used whatever the updated prayer book w- w- is that's used. I don't even know what the updated version is, but they still use the 1929 prayer book. And of course, the 1929 prayer book is better than maybe the 1979 prayer book. I don't know, and I don't know how those things work. And, I, and listen to me, my heart, I'm not throwing stones. I'm just reading the article. And I started looking at that and just kind of reading it. And I, and I started thinking about the old parable that Jesus told about how God can't put new wine into old wineskins. And I started thinking about just, and of course, I, I, I don't walk in these circles and this isn't a part of my life but I started thinking about how there are people who are experts in this particular area of wine and the age of wine who would say that certain particular years are of great vintage I do remember I think James Bond had like a 57 Dom Perignon or something I don't know maybe that was But I was thinking about that. I thought, they, they were, I don't even know all the names. I mean, I don't, and, and don't holler any out because it, But someone will say, well, you know, if you got a 1963, you know. And no, they don't date Mike's Hard Lemonade. I'll just tell you that right now. They do not date those things. All right. I'm making jokes. Everybody's just going, we, we, we know what pastor thinks in this area, so I can't believe he's talking about I don't want to do anything. That would, all right, just relax just for a minute. For a minute. But I, but I know how dates sometimes indicate, you know, better year, better age, better this, better that. And so I was reading the article, and I thought to myself, well, you know what they basically said was, they've said that 1929 is a better vintage. 1929 was a very good year for religion. Exceptional bouquet. Exceptional quality, the aroma of 1929. I mean, you can't get much better than that. And that's how some people are, really. There's, there are certain moments or stages in history where they say to themselves, that was the year. In fact, every time I go to church, just like James Bond, who orders whatever he orders every time he goes in, every time they go into church, I want my 1929 vintage. That's what I want. Because 1929, the memory. Listen to what Jesus said. Listen, 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 listen. He didn't say that he was sending 1929 wine. He says that he must put new. Are you with me? And he can't put new wine into a old wineskin. God wants to do something new in your life. 
God wants to do something new in his church. God wants to do something new in the earth. But we're, we're going to have to quit smelling 1929 corks. And we're going to have to embrace an aspect of God that oftentimes doesn't get proclaimed. I understand that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means He's older than 1929. And the point being is this, that He is unchangeable. That's because He's God. I'm not. Therefore, I change constantly to be conformed more and more and more and more into his image and into his likeness as I'm moving into his will, as he shows things to me line upon line, order upon order, precept upon precept, as he makes a roadway in the desert, as he cuts a path in the forest, he begins to spring up new things. Behold, he said, I am doing a new thing. Can you not perceive it? That's Bible. And the answer most, for most people is a resounding no, I'm clueless. But here's the good news. The good news is this morning you can say, yes, you are, Lord. It starts in my life, and I want you to unveil it to me, and I'm ready to walk with you. I'm ready to walk with you into my land. Amen? Stand with me, will you please? Thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of your spirit. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be locked into some moment, as good as that moment may have been. Lord, I, I pray, I pray for the one Lord, that even the article that I was reading, Lord, I know, I know that there's something there in their heart that's saying that I remember when God moved and, and God was good in that particular situation. And Lord, that's a wonderful thing to be able to remember. But Lord, I just don't want to remember. I, I want to press forward. I, I, I want to be a prophetic person that I can press into your future and what you have for me. Lord, I pray for this people right now. Because every single person in this auditorium, Lord, has a future in you. There's a destiny that you have for them. And Lord, for some of it, it may be in the area of ministry, but truth, truth is, for most of the folk here, their future has to deal with their families and their relationships and their jobs and their careers. And Lord, those are noble aspirations. Those are things that you work in for them. And Lord, I, I pray right now for every person that feels like they're in a dead-end job. I break the feeling of that right now and cause, Lord, cause them to renew their hope that you've got something better, greater. Something not, that not only just gives them money, money, money's one thing, but Lord, something that gives them a sense of satisfaction that, that their life is purposeful. Lord, I, I pray right now for those that, that are right in the middle of, of career issues, changes, training, schooling. Lord, I pray right now that, that they'd continue to hear your voice and do what you're asking of them to do. That they might not just walk into some good paying career. And Lord, we're glad when you prosper our hands, but I've looked at many a professional who with sadness in their eyes wish they'd done something different than what they did. Lord, I pray right now that you would cause them to be renewed in hearing the voice of the Lord. Lord, I pray that those right now that may be struggling in relationship or wondering what you've got going on, could be singles out here, wondering what you've got in their future and, and, and all the questions that arise around those things. Or, or maybe there are those that have had broken hearts or whatever the case may be. Lord, I pray right now that they would somehow in that moment see that there's such gain before them. 
And that out of pain, gain can come. Lord, I just pray, do right now what what I cannot do. I can teach or preach, but I, I can't cause a heart to leap and hope again. Lord, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that as even a local church, we would find ourselves, Lord, edgy. That we, that we would have that edge that comes from hearing your voice and knowing what you're saying and doing. Lord, that, that an effectiveness of ministry can begin to happen. Lord, that can, that can touch lives. Lord, that we can begin to see true transformation begin to take place. I pray that right now in the name of Jesus. Lord, I believe there are people here today that are camped, standing on the banks of their Jordan, getting ready to press through into a new day. Lord, we don't want to miss that day. 2007, Lord, I'm just convinced your word has been released. I'm convinced that 2007 is going to be a great year. How many of you right now could say amen? That to your 2007 right now is going to be a great year. Come on now. Amen means so be it. So be it. Come on. There's going to be a year. There's going to be a year that will come in your life that will be the best year of your life. Do you believe that? That there's going to be that year? And let me just say this. It's not behind you. It's in front of you. Don't you say, well, I, I remember, you know, back 1983. I mean, that's a pretty good year. Well, praise God. That's not the best year. You've got to believe that. You've got to say, so be it. So be it, Lord. Let this year. Hey, what, what else do you want to believe? You don't lose anything by just saying, Lord, I'm believing 2007, the best year ever. The best year ever. The best year ever. Come on now, right now. You know what God's ripping out of some of you right now? He's ripping out of some of you that negative nature. Come on, let him rip it out of you right now. You just, you just got a negative nature. You look at everything and, and everything's always falling apart. You know why? You know why God wants to rip that out of you? Because even if it's falling apart, God's saying this. I want it to fall apart in order that I can put it back together again right. You got to start seeing it that way. Some of you see the glass half empty. It's just, it's almost empty. It's almost empty. Come on. Let him begin to fill it up and see it half full. He's filling it up to overflowing in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Let him do that in you right now. You have a choice right now to live the rest of this year differently than you've lived it up to this point. Would you let him work that in you? I can't, I can't do that. Do you understand? I can make you laugh, tell some jokes, get you chuckling, make you feel a little better. But some of you need God to reach in right now and just yank out that old disposition and, and build a new one inside of you. And what you need to say is, Lord, do it in me. Do it in me. You don't have to holler. You can, under your breath, just say, Lord, do it in me. Do it in me. Lord, you've got something good for people here this morning. And I ask you right now, in the name of Jesus, Lord, would you begin to just unveil that future to your people right now. Unveil that plan. Unveil that promise. Lord, we're going to stay on this subject because I just believe you're leading people to a moment that change is going to come, that they can walk into their destiny. Listen to me now. With every head bowed, every eye closed, this is what I'm going to do before we leave. I'm going to do this real quick. 
The Greek word for sin is harmatia, which means to miss the mark. God didn't set a bunch of rules, a bunch of standards, a bunch of things out there just to make your life miserable. But ultimately, the reason he sets these things in place and calls them sin is because he knows if we enter into it, we will miss the mark of hitting his ultimate destiny and purpose. And God wants to get you from where you are to that destiny in as short a time and as straight a line as possible. And the reason he says, get that sin stuff out of your life is because it will cause you to miss what ultimately is best. Now, I can, I can threaten you with hell. I can tell you that God won't put up with it. He's righteous, and he's this cosmic cop that's ready to beat the fire out of you. But I always remember, that's not what moved me. What moved me was he had a plan. He had a program. He had something out there that was really, really good if I just go after him. And everything else seemed to peel away. I'd really like you to come to know him through that means than all the other stuff that may be out there. True, but why don't you come, why don't you turn like the Bible says, let the goodness of God turn your heart. Let the goodness of God bring you to repentance. Let the goodness of God change you. Let his future, his plan, come on now. He, he wants the best for you, but you, you can't dictate the terms. You're going to have to come to terms with him. And if you'll do it, he will do it. With every head bowed, every eye closed, right now, I'm not debating doctrine with you. I don't give a rip what you did when you were eight years old or years ago. All I care about is this moment right now. But if you are alienated from the Lord right now, if you know right now there are things that are standing between you and him, I'm telling you, you will miss the mark. You say, it's just small. I don't care how small it is. When they built the St. Louis Arch, if they were off a 16th of an inch at the bottom, they'd be off four feet at the top. So you may be just a sixteenth of an inch off of where you need to be, but ten years from now, you're going to be miles off course. Come on now, let's just be honest. If, if there's anything right now that you need to get under the blood, you need to say, I repent from every head bowed, every eye closed, but you be honest, and I don't care if no one else raises their hand. You are so committed to getting to where God would have you to be. If you were the only one, you would do it. When I count to three, just lift your hand right now. One, two, Three, come on, just put it up. Put it up, keep it up, keep it up. Put them down right now. I want everybody to repeat after me. The whole congregation join with me. Everyone say, dear Jesus, I confess with my mouth that I've been wayward and I have sinned and I'm missing the mark. I make a choice to repent. I, I changed my mind about what I've been doing and I'm changing my actions as you're enduing me with power to walk out your will. I put in my mouth the confession that Jesus is Lord. He is my master. He is my destiny and provides for me everything I'll ever need. I believe right now you were raised from the dead and that same power is available to me at this very moment. Fill me up. Cause that power to come alive in me that I might walk with you. I'm making that commitment. I'm surrendering my life. 
and telling you it's yours, Lord. I really mean it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Can we give the Lord a big hand now? Thank you, Lord. I'm going to let you go. here. 60 seconds, I'm going to let you go. There were, there, were, there were numerous hands that went up. I mean, there were more. There, there, there were 40. I mean, I'm just guessing. But there were a lot of folks that said, you know, I need to get back on track. Let me share this one thing. Nobody can check up on you, but this is important that you do this. You need to find a couple people before this day's over. You could do it before you leave this room today. And you need to look someone in the eye and say, you know what? I'm, I am back on track because I prayed that prayer with Pastor. I made that confession, and I am, I am serious about getting to the will of God. I'm serious about my promise and my destiny, and I just need to tell someone about that. And you know, if you'll speak that word and you'll testify to that, you'll begin to overcome, and things will be put in motion. Don't hide it. You hide it, I'm telling you, you'll say to yourself, well, I prayed, but nothing happened. You need to get the word. Remember what God said to Joshua? Put the word in your mouth and begin to declare it to somebody, and God will begin to move for you. I believe it. You now need to do it and believe it. Amen? Praise God. Lord, bless your people now. Lord, let great destiny erupt from this place. Let this week be an unusual week as you distinguish yourself in folks' lives. And Lord, bring us back. Lord, for all the connect group meetings. Lord, for, for classes on Wednesday. For all that you're doing, Lord, we just, we just speak safety over each and every one as we go about and work in the harvest this week. We thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen, love each other, greet each other, and you are released.